1: Welcome
2: back to Mornings with Simi. I'm Jazz Johal. Thank you for joining us this morning. And I hope uh, you're having a really wonderful commute. Uh, you know, when I come in early, uh, it's a clear sailing. But uh, I think with uh, Christmas holidays this week, it's uh, not a bad drive-in. So I hope it's a, a, a relaxing drive-in. And a reminder to all of you to give us a call on our buzz lines. Do you think yesterday's restrictions that the B.C. government introduced um, went far enough or do you think they went too far? I'm very curious as to get a, a sense from all of you in regards to what Dr. Henry said with and what uh, Provincial uh, Minister of Health, uh, Adrian Dix, said as well. You can call our buzz line at 604-331-2899, 604-331-2899. Now, the BC government, of course, brought in a suite of new restrictions to no intergatherings of any size, which uh, won't be allowed, including weddings, receptions, holiday parties, and other events. All the restrictions will come into place Tonight at 11.59 p.m. and last until January 18th, Uh, the restrictions will add to the measures put in place by the province – Last week. Now, the BC government is the only one, of course, bringing in restrictions. It's across this country, and in fact, I have a whole list in front of me. And each one is very much a little different, but in many cases, similar as well. The dates are a little different. Some of the gathering and gathering issues and challenges that we see here are going to remain, but in other provinces, they're a bit more relaxed, and vice versa as well. Well, we're joined now by Dr. Nazim uh, Mujaharin, an epidemiologist at the University of Saskatchewan. Dr. Mujaharin, thank you for joining us today.
3: Oh, uh, thanks for having me, guys. Uh, Jess, good morning. Good morning.
2: So, walk me through this. I know you've probably looked at some of the restrictions in, mm-hmm. in different provinces. Um, do you believe it's enough of a circuit breaker to have an impact nationally?
3: Yeah, yeah Jess, you're right. So, I'm actually I'm looking at a whole uh, Excel sheet here with all ten provinces. Uh, uh, you know, uh, public health measures that have been introduced in the last week or so. Um, you know, I think that uh, in I'm not sure whether these are really uh circuit breakers I mean I think uh, it is not uh, presented that way uh but uh, but you know uh regardless I think uh, the measures that are uh, we are seeing across the country uh are really trying to um, stave off to kind of you know to try to put some brakes on that transmission of omicron that we are seeing that is really uh threatening to get away from us um you know this omicron uh, variant is spreading uh so quickly uh you know and it's like a bullet train compared to uh deltas uh, perhaps a ferrari <laughs> yeah uh, it is it is just moving fast it is packing a punch and uh, and i think um you know, we have no choice, really, and and uh, but to you know put these measures, uh, and they're really to uh, control uh, people gathering in large numbers, circulating in the community uh, with people who you don't know their vaccine status and uh, and you know COVID status. So that is really the principle behind that.
2: Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things I think uh, some members of the public may not understand is when when fighting a pandemic like this, it highlights how the Canadian Federation works in that, um, uh-huh. uh, you know, the provinces handle healthcare. At the early stages, people thought there would be some sort of emergencies act that we could, on a national level, fight this, but reality is we're fighting this on a provincial by provincial, healthcare system by healthcare system uh, manner. Um, how much information, uh, uh-huh. as an academic, how much information is actually shared by provinces? This is a sort of a national call where they're discussing things on a daily basis and uh-huh. sharing that information. How much sharing
3: Yeah, so, yes, I think uh, there are sharing going on in multiple, uh, multiple levels. Uh, So I am aware that uh, the chief medical health officers uh, talk to each other on a call virtually, uh, on a weekly basis. Um, I think this happens on the weekend, as a matter of fact. I mean, I, that's what I've been told. Uh, and uh, so that is uh, at one level, the chief medical health officers are talking to each other uh, on a weekly basis. And then uh, the network, research network that I'm part of, Co- Coronavirus Variants Rapid Response Network, you know, we have local public health officials involved in our network and uh, and so. Last night we sent uh, a whole bunch of information on ten provinces, the territories, uh, public health measures as per yesterday. You know, so BC's um, the additional public health measures that were introduced yesterday that is going to effect today until January 18th, as you mentioned in the intro, mm-hmm. uh, it was included. Um, you know, I think in addition to that, uh, the federal government is uh, is is you know uh, coming out with announcement on a on a weekly basis, if not uh, daily, and um, you know I would like to see uh, uh, the uh, prime minister uh, kind of you know step up a little bit more, uh, you know, uh, on a a regular basis, and uh, and kind of message that you know this is an important uh, uh, period to to really protect and uh, take measures to. Uh, you know uh, to to uh, to keep the Omicron transmission to to a minimum as possible. Mm-hmm. So yes. A lot, of, a lot of sharing, a lot of conversation going on, but action is happening at a individual provincial level. You're absolutely right.
2: I'm very curious, because social media is not the best place to gauge this, but there's always somebody saying, well, this jurisdiction is doing a little bit better, yeah. uh, or this nation-state, uh, let's say Denmark, uh, or this state in the United States, or the UK, or Israel. These things get thrown out all the time. Is there a jurisdiction here on a provincial level, yeah. or even, uh, let's just say a state in the US, is there a jurisdiction that's doing this well uh, that we could learn from, uh, and, and I use this in the context of British Columbia, which is some have said yeah. we've gotten lucky, some have said we've done well. Uh, I'll leave that, those comments aside, but is there a jurisdiction we should, we should be looking at and saying this is a good model to follow?
3: Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, whenever we we uh, we point out one one or two jurisdictions, we are leaving out others. But that being said, I think right now, uh, Jess, I, I I really think uh, Quebec and Ontario, uh, the two largest provinces in Canada, are probably doing. Uh, all the measures that they can and quickly as they can comprehensively as they can uh, to stave off this uh, this particular surge uh, and 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 the numbers are highest there, so it makes sense that you know they they are quite aggressive uh, and and uh, quite comprehensive you know it 's interesting uh on the other of the ledger, uh, Saskatchewan, the province I'm based out of, uh, is the only province in the country that doesn't have gathering limitations or capacity limitations. Coming to BC, uh, what I would say is that I'm really surprised that uh, the booster doses uh, are not uh, offered to to uh, to a larger group of people and population. Uh, in that sense, BC is standing out, not in a good way, mm-hmm. uh, in terms of booster doses. I think we all have to do much better, including BC, in terms of getting that rapid test. Uh, not not only getting the, uh, rapid test into people, uh, but. But telling them how to when to use it you know uh, appropriately, and I think uh, that information is is just coming out in drips and drabs and mostly done by people uh, you know people in academia people uh, who are doing research and 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 so on so I think that is kind of the um, uh, like a, a quick uh, a quick summary um, I think um, you know, what I like about the BC, uh, BC's uh, uh, additional public health measures is that, going back to that idea about circuit breaker, uh, they have an expiration date, January 18th. Uh, the, the measures that were introduced yesterday uh, mm-hmm. is, is for January 18th. And I think that is a wise, uh, that gives people uh, an idea, okay, you know, these three or four weeks, We need to do this, but it's not going to be forever.
2: I have one final question. I don't have a lot of time. Uh, You are an epidemiologist, uh, and I'm going to put you into the academic or scientist category or provincial health officer. You look at data. um, How much, when you recommend, uh, let's just say someone says, what what does a province need to do in regards to deal with, let's say, Omicron? What role, if any, does public sentiment and mood... Uh, uh play in your decision making in regards to recommendations or none i'm mean, because you know politicians are the ones probably the most suited to deal with public sentiment that's their job but in regards to a scientist and academic yeah. does public sentiment uh play a role in regards to what you recommend
3: you know uh it's a really good question uh it does in the sense that, you know, it is really the public that is that needs to uh, do the things that, that, you know, we are suggesting, we are recommending that, uh, that the public do. Uh, and, and also, we are part of the public as well. Yeah, I mean, multiple roles. We all play multiple roles. Uh, in this call, I'm I'm playing my you know role of an epidemiologist, uh, but I also uh, do the things that <laughs> that, uh, that that I'm saying that, that we need to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I really do think that we, we do take that into consideration, uh, you know, and and uh, and but we are also realistic. Uh, but the 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 prime uh, motivation that is driving our recommendation is in is science and the evidence and what and the prudent approach uh the precautionary principle to keep all, uh, all of us safe
2: mm-hmm. Dr. Mujahreen, uh, thank you so much for your time today.
3: Yes. uh, Have a
2: happy holidays. You too. Take care of yourself and be safe. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Dr. Nazim Mujareen is an epidemiologist at the University of Saskatchewan. We were just talking about new restrictions here in British Columbia, but also where we sit in regards to other provinces and jurisdiction, as they've also brought in their own um, uh, provincial health matters and measures as well. This is Mornings with Simi. Welcome back to Mornings of Simi. I'm Jazz Joe Hall. Thank you for bringing us along for the morning commute. Uh, before we get to our next segment, I just want to remind uh, our listeners uh, to give us a call on the buzz line. Uh, the question of the day today is whether or not you think the health care measures or uh, provincial uh, measures that were brought in yesterday, uh, and I won't go through all of them, I think we're all aware of them now, do you think they go far enough to protect us from Omicron? Or do you think they go too far, uh, especially around Christmas season? I'm very interested to in hear from small business owners as well. Give us a call on the Buzz Lines, 604-331-2899. That's 604-331-BUZZ. Or you can email me at jazz at cknw.com. That's J A S at cknw.com, we'll play them uh, within the hour. I'd love to hear from all of you in regards to what you think of these new healthcare measures that were brought in uh, here in British Columbia. Now, as cases climb in BC, we're going to check in uh, on our BC paramedics who are on the front lines during uh, the high COVID surge. What types of stress are paramedics dealing with as cases continue to climb in BC? Joining us now is Troy Clifford, Ambulance Paramedics Union President, and an active paramedic. Troy, thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me on, Joe.
2: So, can you give me a sense of what uh, uh, paramedics are presently dealing with in regards to Omicron, and you're still dealing with Delta as well, but with the with the rise and prominence of Omicron, what are the what are, what are paramedics seeing?
1: Well, they're you know i have talking to a number of them over the weekend. And as you know, it escalated really quickly with the uh, the spread, and and this uh, in this. Variant is really different than what we understand from every other one, um, in the sense of how quickly it spreads. And um, I think that's really where they we we've realized just uh, the incredible number of more people that we're seeing um, infected.
2: And uh, in regards to the calls that your members get, are there any special precautions uh, on top of what they probably already? Uh, uh, sort of uh, the process that they're in in regards to some of these uh, calls that they go to. Is there any special precautions that they're taking now because of Omicron?
1: Well, I think that's no... Uh, you know, our our um, our PPE and our uh, safety precautions are well-established. We, you know, that's why early on in COVID we were able to transition so quickly um, for our protection and, and our patient protection because our, our personal protective equipment is very robust and we have... Uh, uh, safety protocols and all those sort of uh, established practices that allowed us to be able to be safe and that. So our infection rates were really low um, related to patient care. I mean, the risks are high, obviously, because you're contacting patients multiple times a day um, that uh, may not be in, the, in, in a situation where they're um, aware of uh, even being infected, right? So we have to, pr- we provide the uh, the safety precautions um, to basically out uh, of due diligence for all patients but um, nothing's changed from a perspective other than it's really a, a, a staunch reminder of how diligent you must be um, not only for paramedics but everybody just how you know we had hoped we're seeing some uh, opening up and it was really a refreshing to be able to socialize a little more and I think that's really where the Impacts on paramedics right now is that they're exhausted. Mm-hmm. Um, we've had a lot of challenges with our service and, and the mental health challenges, and, and like everybody, uh, the fatigue and uh, I guess COVID fatigue we'll call it. And then now it's just discouraging. Right now we're leading into the holidays, which should be a time of hope, and we're we're now uh, faced with uh, those uh, those impacts of uh, of, of, a, of a variant that we really don't even know how it's going to. Back to us
2: all. Uh, talk a little bit about, you mentioned the fact that you've had shortages, and you and I have talked about this before. Give me a sense of yeah. where the paramedic service is in regards to uh, dealing with that shortage in the context of COVID and Omicron.
1: Yeah, so um, with all the pressures, you know, the, uh, the natural disasters, uh, all the things that we face, so, and uh, and uh, with with COVID, uh, we, we continue to see increased call volumes, uh, um, and now that we're seeing more, uh, they they haven't really settled down for us from that perspective. With Omicron, we haven't really seen the um, additional uptake with more ambulance calls. Um, there's a, a smaller spike. They're telling me, but uh, because it sounds like it's not as um, severe, uh, the impacts on the people that are vaccinated. So we're we're not seeing the uh, the increases yet. But what we are still experience it, the incredible out-of-service numbers, and, that. and as we lead into the holiday season when more paramedics are off, um, and we're still seeing those incredible numbers. So we're under a lot of pressure right now, and then this, with, with the changes on Omicron and, and from Omicron, and um, we're going to see more pressures, and that uh, puts pressures on the paramedic and dispatcher psychologically.
2: Now, we've okay. heard we've heard from uh, Dr. Henry uh, yesterday, we've heard, uh, hit our highest uh, one-day total in regards to cases of over 1,300. Uh, the shortage has been there and it's structural and it's been there for a while. Have you been given yeah. any sense of when uh, paramedics would be hired, dispatchers, uh, and then trained and ready to work um, to alleviate some of the challenges that the system has right now? Is this still... Months away. How, how close are we to deal with some of the the shortages that uh, the in, the industry itself has had to deal with?
1: Yeah, so they actually have been working since July when the minister announced a number of these, uh, enhancements, and we have seen our dispatchers. Uh, we've had over sixty five new dispatchers and call takers added, so we're starting to see an influx. And in, as well as on the streets, we've seen additional paramedics, but it still hasn't filled the gaps that we're experiencing. So we really haven't seen the meaningful impact on the streets. The dispatch ones are, are starting to see some impact, but we're still seeing those delays for calls. The new board has just been implemented uh, fully and is in place. So there's a number of measures that have been put in place, but obviously it's still not enough. And it's still not because uh, um, we're still seeing those delays and we're still seeing the pressures on on. uh Delayed ambulance calls and, and inability to get through to 911 or through 911 to the ambulance dispatchers. So um, I'm told, and, I, and we're working closely with BCEHS and the and Ministry of Health, but uh, obviously nothing is coming quick enough and we haven't seen the really meaningful change. And one of the areas that uh, was announced on December 3rd was a number of enhancements around emergency preparedness, the more the psychological res- support for families and paramedics, which will go a long ways to. Bolstering our mental health and wellness, and hopefully alleviating a lot of those injuries. Uh, of so there cur- are.
2: Un- Sorry, out of curiosity, are are, are are paramedics able to get time off right now with Omicron during this Christmas break? Um,
1: yeah, some are already on their pre-scheduled holidays, but that's allotted on a percentage. Um, but really, our biggest uh, issue is the filling of vacancies, recruitment, and that. So yeah, some are, but they're they're recalling from holidays. Uh, People are working a lot of extra shifts, which puts a lot of more extra pressure on paramedics and dispatchers.
2: Troy, uh, thank you for your time, and all the best to you, uh, your members as well. Merry Christmas, and once again, uh, all the best, and thanks for your time today.
1: Thank you, Jazz. All the best to everyone at Global and their families and your listeners. And We really want to thank everybody on behalf of the paramedics and dispatchers for all the support they've given us, uh, particularly over the last couple of years, but uh, the last year through the struggles they've had, um, we really, we really do appreciate the support. This is Mornings with Simi
2: on board. Well, we've been talking uh, and spending a lot of time chatting uh, about. Um, and the provisions and public health care uh, measures that were brought in yesterday in regards to bars, nightclubs, gyms, fitness centers, yoga and dance studios here in BC uh, required to shut down uh, organized indoor gatherings, including wedding receptions and banque- banquets uh, uh, being prohibited, restaurant pubs and cafes will remain open. But tables will be limited to six people. Um, we have a cuts in uh, capacity for uh, cinemas, performance halls, concerts, uh, concerts, and sporting events. Uh, a significant impact on business, of course. And now the Surrey Board of Trade is calling for immediate support from provincial and federal governments for businesses impacted by the new restrictions to, to help us uh, uh, get around this issue and understand a little bit better. We have Anita Huberman, the CEO of Surrey Board of Trade, joining us. Good morning, Anita. Good morning, Jess. So what kind of help specifically are you and your organization calling for?
4: Well, when these restrictions are announced concurrent with that, there needs to be business supports for those businesses that are immediately impacted. Uh, so whether it's rent supports, uh, whether it's uh, wage subsidy uh, programs uh, through the federal government, which are now gone and not as easily accessible. And uh, we know that the hardest hit industries throughout this pandemic uh, are within the accommodation, food services, art, entertainment, recreation, uh, gyms, uh, you know those types of businesses that are members of the Surrey Board of Trade. And they're shocked that yet again, uh, they are in this situation until January 18th and some are facing rent increases as of January 1st.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Now, is it fair to at least say that what the government has done here provincially and other provincial governments have done is the right thing to do in regards to public health and safety? Would you agree with that?
4: I would agree with that. Uh, we meet uh, with uh, Bonnie Henry and Minister Kalon in advance of these uh, announcements. Um But basically, uh, they're very quick uh, meetings uh, just to indicate what's forthcoming. But um, yes, the health and science matters. Uh, But in and amongst that, we need to ensure that our businesses are able to survive. And uh, this is the heart and passion uh, of so many people.
2: Mm-hmm. Now, uh, are you, have you gotten any indication uh, in regards to whether or not there will be any announcement of uh, financial aid federally? Because the, the Prime Minister will be speaking uh, along with the Deputy Prime Minister, Christia Freeland, uh, in about 90 minutes. Uh, have you had any sort of indication whether it will be federal financial aid made available?
4: So we know at the end of October, the federal government released uh, the hardest-hit business recovery program. Uh, so that was a revitalized COVID-19 business support, but with more stringent criteria. Wage subsidy gone, rent support's gone. Uh, but if you were in a lockdown facing restrictions, you could access some of that funding, Um, But it's not easily accessible. We know the province is also working on it, too. We heard that very clearly yesterday. So we're hoping for news very, very soon.
2: Okay. Now, uh, in regards to the uh, help from government, let's let's look at the provincial government for a second. Uh, Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth uh, uh, talked a little bit about uh, helping businesses yesterday at the press conference. We had Ravi Kalan on the show, uh, Minister for Economic Development here in our province, uh, yesterday on a separate issue looking at um, food delivery services, but I did ask him about subsidies. He he didn't answer directly because I think the cabinet is meeting today or tomorrow on this issue. Um, but you do you think government can move quick enough in regards to this? And, and what's one of the reasons? Uh, the ha- Cabinets has to meet. Uh, there has to be an announcement made, some sort of program has to be set up whether it's federal or provincial do you worry about how fast government can move in regards to providing help for these businesses because look rents either do at the end of the month or the first of the month it's coming around and uh, very few businesses are seeing the kind of robust uh sort of uh, uh i guess customers coming into their offices or their their businesses liked it at pre-covid i think the canadian federation of independent businesses about 36 percent of businesses small businesses have said um businesses back to pre-covid level so the vast majority of them still are struggling uh, have you have you had any sort of indication provincial or federal how fast these government programs can be started up and getting the money to uh your members
4: Well, we hope it's immediate, that they don't have to wait weeks and weeks, and we've seen that uh, during this pandemic, that businesses have had to wait weeks and weeks uh, for money to come in, and they still have bills to pay. We know that COVID is uh, here, uh, and we've had it with us for two years. And it's not going to go away. Is there a way that the BC government can put in a business support program uh, without having to go to cabinet all of these meetings? And it, it can be immediately implemented when these restrictions are announced so that businesses... The hardest-hit businesses can access these funds immediately.
2: Mm -hmm. Now, one of the challenges um, that we've seen in regards to public sentiment, uh, and I've seen the polling, uh, this was about a month ago, uh, we have a budget deficit, a federal budget deficit, uh, that uh, is about $144 billion. That's the prediction. It's actually a little bit better. Initially, it was supposed to be $154 billion. The general public sentiment, and this is a couple of months ago, was that they had liked to cease the subsidies, uh, wound down because we've spent a lot of money and they're not saying that the, the small businesses didn't require that help uh, when COVID hit but for us to continue to do so means it's going to get even tougher to balance our budget one day and at the very least for a government to get to a healthier place when it comes to, to dollars. What do you say to, to the fact that there is strong public cement sentiment as well that we cannot continue to subsidize individuals in this case Serb, or even small businesses that we do need to wind down these subsidies as well. There is a growing, um, I'm not saying it's a majority, but it's certainly growing um, part of our population that says there's only so much we can do. We can't continue to subsidize small businesses.
4: Well, we've said in the past uh, at the Surrey board of trade to the federal government and to the provincial government that we do need to uh, reinvigorate uh, all of these subsidy programs. There were businesses that didn't need to access, individuals that didn't need to access these programs. Uh, and so, yes, we are facing a significant deficit federally and provincially. But uh, the fact of the matter is that small and medium-sized businesses drive the economic engine for Canada, for B.C., for Surrey. And uh, when you put in these restrictions, yes, the health and science matters. Yes, we need to reduce our deficit. But these are businesses that support well-paying jobs. They need to be supported to a certain extent uh, and also ensuring that there's credibility uh, around the issuance of of that funding support.
2: Anita, thank you for your time today. Thank you, Jess. All right, that's Anita Hoverman, CEO of the Surrey Board of Trade, talking about uh, immediate financial support for small businesses across British Columbia from Victoria and from Ottawa.
0: to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system.
2: Welcome back to Mornings with Simi. I'm Jazz Joe Hall filling in this week. While players from the National Hockey League will not participate at next year's Beijing Winter Olympic Games amid a rise in COVID-19 cases... According to media reports, the decision by the NHL and the NHL Players Association comes as COVID-19 infections in the league have exploded and 45 games have been postponed since December 13th, the Canadian press reports, uh, citing an anonymous anonymous source uh, Tuesday. Now, two people with direct knowledge of the discussions told Associated Press on Tuesday that the league informed the National uh, Hockey League's Players Association it was exercising its right to withdraw from the Beijing Games because there was a material disruption to the season, joining joining us now to talk about the NHL, uh, the Beijing Olympics, and the impact of COVID on professional sports is Squire Barnes, Global News BC's sports director and anchor. Good morning, Squire.
5: Good morning, Jazz. And now it is official: the NHL has officially told the IOC that it's done; that they're not coming.
2: Does, did this surprise you?
5: No, not now. Um, the NHL owners never wanted to go to the Olympics. But in the last bargaining agreement with the players, they did say, okay, the players were the ones who really wanted to go. We'll let you go. Um, But there was a clause in that contract that basically said, if COVID rears its ugly head again and begins to force cancellations of games, we may have to rethink this because the three week Olympic break that would have happened in February would then have to be used and it will have to be used now to make up for games that have been postponed, which I think have now reached 50, 50 games have been postponed through December 23rd. And the NHL wasn't planning to play on Christmas Eve and, and Christmas day and boxing day anyway. But so all those games now have to be made up. So that's why once this Omicron started to race around the league and force the cancellation and postponement of games, not cancellations, but postponements, mm-hmm. there was no way the NHL was going to um, let the players go. And quite frankly, Jazz, the players I don't think wanted to go. They wanted to go, but they didn't want to go. Mm-hmm. They didn't want to be over in, in China, in Beijing, with the very real possibility that could there, there could be an outbreak within the players at the tournament. And then
2: what happened? I was was reading somewhere that if if they did, let's say, uh, had to deal with COVID uh, over at the Olympics, if the players uh, uh, were were able to or did get COVID, that they would have to isolate in China. And literally for three to five weeks, I've heard different stories, but three to five weeks in China before they can return back to North America. And that's got to be a huge worry for owners who are paying these players lots of money. And they want them back, obviously. And and so... uh, Is in regards to what's happened to the NHL, the NFL, the NBA is dealing with all of this. Do you see any structural changes uh, for the rest of the year, but potentially the following year when you're looking at fall of 2022? Because COVID will still be around.
5: Well, that's true. I mean, all the leagues felt that they had learned something from the first wave, from the Delta variant, if you like. And I think all the leagues felt that they had the right protocols in place, but this has changed the game again. But the one thing that we are seeing, like the NFL, for example, most of the players in these leagues are now double vaccinated. The NHL, in fact, the entire league is double vaccinated, save for one player in Detroit, Tyler Bertuzzi. So there was a push in the NFL because let's go to the NFL for a second. This past week, ended yesterday with two games. Seattle was involved with the Rams and Washington and Philadelphia. Those games were moved Tuesday because there were outbreaks on Washington and outbreaks on Los Angeles. Actually, the Seahawks had nine players as well who had tested positive for COVID. And the NFL wanted to shorten the time and shorten the requirements for players to get back in the game, basically. Because they, if you are double vaccinated, they felt that there's got to be a way to get a player back in the game quickly. Um, so I, I think as, you see, as we go forward now, all of these leagues are going to try to figure out ways that if a player is double or triple vaccinated, that there'll be a way to get them back in the game faster. Yeah. rather than waiting for two negative tests, which was the plan before.
2: Yeah, There's too much uh, money and uh, television money uh, that's uh, number one uh, that you give up uh, if these leagues ever do permanently shut down. And number two, I got to tell you, uh, as a huge sports fan, NFL fan, NHL, NBA, uh, when you are at home and you can't do much during these, uh, I wouldn't call it a lockdown, obviously, with these health measures, um, you know, professional sports plays a, a role in regards to passing the time, enjoying some communal time with family as well. So, uh, I do want these guys to be healthy and and up and running and and getting back to uh, watching sports as well. Thank you so much, Squire. I really appreciate your time today. No problem.
6: This
1: is Mornings with
6: Simi.
2: Welcome back to Mornings with Simi. Well, a new poll by ResearchCo done on the holiday season reveals some key stats about how Canadians are feeling about this year just before Christmas. To break down the findings of this poll is none other than Mario Conseco, Conseco, President of ResearchCo. Good morning, Mario. Good
6: morning, Jess. Great to be here with you.
2: Thank you. So tell me, uh, what was the major takeaway in regards to what Canadians and particularly British Columbians were expecting from Christmas this year?
6: Well, we definitely see a change, and I have to say that we conducted this survey from December 8 to December 10. So this is right before Omicron, right before all of the situations that we've been uh, facing over the past couple of days. And at the time we asked the questions, people were looking forward to a very fun holiday season. Uh, Back in 2020, for the first time since we've been tracking this question, we had more Canadians who felt that it was going to be a time for stress and tension, and it seems that things were slowly getting back to the usual ways when it came to the way British Columbians and Canadians uh, we're expecting the holiday season to be.
2: Yeah, it's uh, when you look at uh, what we have here in British Columbia with the announcement yesterday, and I have all the breakdown of all the provinces, and everyone's handling uh, Omicron a little differently. But certainly, it, it is not what it was like uh, three or four weeks ago, or when you had con- uh, conducted the the poll. But there are some findings, and they're quite interesting in regards to greetings. Um, you know, this is my personal bias, and I'll be say it right away. Uh, I, I prefer to say Merry Christmas. Uh, I know you hear happy holidays a lot. What, what did you hear from Canadians and British Columbians in regards to uh, the, the proper greetings that people prefer during during the holiday season?
6: Well, you're in the majority, Jess. Thank <laughs> God. A three to one margin uh, for Merry <laughs> Christmas. Uh, 62% of Canadians say that is the greeting that they like. Uh, 20% who say happy holidays. Now, the numbers have been shifting a little bit. You know, when we first started asking this question, it was closer to 70% for Merry Christmas uh, it's essentially a situation where younger Canadians, those aged 18 to 34, and Quebecers are more likely to look at happy holidays as the greeting that they prefer, but the numbers aren't just there. You know, It's not a situation where you have a 50-50 split on the two greetings. It continues to be Merry Christmas by a wide margin.
2: Mm-hmm. Now, I'm of the Sikh faith, so uh, I didn't grow up uh, with the traditional uh, sort of uh, Christmas uh, upbringing with the tree and all of that sort of thing, but I know many South Asians of the Hindu or Sikh or Muslim grew up with the Christmas tree. And we certainly celebrate it in my house. We have a tree up. Uh, we do Christmas dinner, the traditional dinner. Uh, and while the 25th is a, a religious, a religiously important, important in regards to religion for the Sikh faith, um, it is a Christian Holiday is a, it is a religious event as well. Uh, so that's why I prefer Merry Christmas. But in regards to faith itself, uh, you know, in the last 10 or 15 years, I hear a lot of people saying, well, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. How much of an impact does that broader conversation about religion uh, in the context of Christmas play now in people's perceptions of what Christmas is? Some people view it as a retail event. Uh, some view it as time with family And for many Canadians, it is, you know, a religious event, as it should be, because that's where Christmas comes from, Christendom. How do Canadians view Christmas now?
6: Well, it's definitely shifting. And I think we need to look into the age demographics to understand what this means, because we do see... Fewer Canadians are under the age of 35 who identify with a specific religion. They're more likely to look at themselves as atheist or agnostic. Only 36% of them describe themselves as Christian. It jumps to 48% with middle-aged Canadians and 62% for those over the age of 55. So... You look at the generational changes, and it doesn't mean that these younger Canadians aren't celebrating Christmas or looking forward to spending time with friends and family. It's just that the way they look into the season is definitely different from what it was for their parents or grandparents.
2: Yeah, and I guess that that points to a broader uh, conversation that's been going on in North American society or Western society where religion fits in a, in a secular society and a society that uh, is ever-evolving and changing. And we've had these conversations where religion... Or, the, or Christianity specifically does very well in so- South America, Africa, parts yep. of South Asia, and there has been challenges – uh for uh Christianity in, in in western in Europe itself western Europe specifically and of course in North America now let's move on to the other issue of, of Christmas which is food and when I heard the announcement uh, from Dr. Henry and I don't want to paint her as as a negative or anything like that she's just doing her job and I appreciate everything that she does and Minister Dix as well but what I love about Christmas is the food of course and uh, spending time with family what In regards to Christmas, do people like to eat? And what are some of the the, the foods that people are looking forward to and hopefully are still looking forward to with these these health measures that have brought in?
6: Well, the the staples of the season uh, are definitely preferred by Canadians. Uh, We have 84% who like turkey. Uh, Brussels sprouts are a little bit more complicated. We have 33% of Canadians who definitely or probably dislike them. Uh, (laughs) But the one issue that is really controversial is eggnog. And, you know, we have 54% of Canadians who like it, 37% who don't. It's particularly popular here in British Columbia at 66%. So if you're looking for a place where people enjoy eggnog, we are definitely in it. The numbers are lowest in Quebec. We have 43% of Quebecers who definitely dislike or probably dislike eggnog. And I think it has a lot to do with the way it, it has been translated into French. It's essentially hen's milk, so it might not be too palatable for everybody. <laughs>
2: well, I was looking at the numbers here. There's also a gender uh, gap in, um, amongst Canadians when it comes to, to eggnog as well here, right? 60% of men like it, but only 48% of women. So I, uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of eggnog, but there's a bit of a gender divide.
6: There is. You know, and, and what is really striking here is you look at the level of definite dislike uh, that women in Canada have for, uh, for specific things. And eggnog is the highest at 32%. So if you really, really dislike it, you're definitely going to let us hear about it. Uh, fruitcake is also controversial. We have middle-aged Canadians, uh, those aged 35 to 54, 47% of them say that they dislike fruitcake. So uh, be nice to the Generation Xers in your life. Don't give them fruitcake. They probably don't want it.
2: <laughs> so true. So thank you. Thank you so much for your time today.
6: My pleasure, Jess. This is Mornings with Simi.
2: Welcome back to Mornings with Simi. I'm Jazz Hall. Thank you for joining us for the final half hour of the show. Well, Sarah Sars, who is a cardiac nurse at St. Paul's, was one of the first women in BC to participate in a virtual prenatal class when the COVID pandemic began. With pregnant women in BC facing social isolation and a lack of connection due to COVID protocols and safety rules, St. Paul's Hospital saw the significant need to offer this community an easily accessible way to connect and get support. Uh, Sarah joins us now. She is a cardiac nurse at St. Paul's as well. Sarah, thank you for uh, talking to us this morning.
7: My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So tell
2: me, um, when you took the program, how important was it for you?
7: It was really important. It was our first child, my husband and I, so we were expecting, and we were looking for both an affordable um, prenatal class as well as something that was COVID-friendly at the time because it was kind of in that spring of 2020 when we started looking into prenatal classes. And my mom actually let me know that St. Paul's was offering virtual Prenatal classes, so I looked into it more and signed up uh, as soon as we could. So it just met all of our needs. It was affordable and accessible during the pandemic.
2: So was your husband part of the process as well, watching the the, as part of the virtual classes as well?
7: He was. That's correct. It was really easy for him to join into, and actually, it was his first day home after six weeks away of work. So it worked out well with our schedule.
2: Wonderful. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So uh, you know, uh, so you, you have one child then.
7: That's correct. Yes, She's eighteen months now. Eighteen
2: so. months, uh, happy mm-hmm. and healthy, and sleeping through the night. But I'm, I'm hoping. <laughs> uh, <laughs> she did uh, last night, so I'm feeling
7: great this morning. <laughs>
2: wonderful. I, I speak from some experience having. I mean, I'm where uh, my son was born. Well, thirteen years ago now, but uh, I remember those first couple of years. Uh, they're challenging and they're wonderful at the same time. And but it's a it's a very interesting part of life. Uh, um, in regards to the classes themselves, um, what specifically did you take from them that was most important for you?
7: Well, we, um, what I took from it was just I really needed some more information on what to expect going into labor, what were the signs. Um, and also my husband, I am I'm a nurse, as you mentioned, so I did have some experience in the maternity nursing and nursing school. But my husband, it was his first child, and he hasn't been around newborns or a woman in labor ever. So it was really nice for us to do the class together and for him to gain some knowledge about um, what I would be experiencing and how he could be supportive as my support person there, um, and what for he needed to expect what um, what could happen and um, signs to look for for me as well. You going into labor?
2: Yeah, I mean those are that's very important. Um, obviously, very important to know in regards to how to tell when someone's in labor. But I think with with prenatal classes, I think it's important also to remind our audience that uh, you know it, you can learn about cesarean births, postpartum, and baby care and prenatal breastfeeding, there's there's a lot of, mm-hmm. of, of uh, I think parents uh, that are having their first child, it, it, it's, it's overwhelming, isn't it, in regards to the information that um, you sort of gets thrown at you and, and it's wonderful to have somebody to sort of explain all of it to you as well.
7: Definitely. And I did, I looked online and they've um, done a lot more, they have a lot more classes that they're offering now. So like you mentioned, there's a class on cesarean birth, postpartum and baby care and breastfeeding. And it, it just is, um, everybody focuses, I think, on being pregnant initially, and then what to expect with labor, but there's so much to learn about caring for a newborn and your experience with breastfeeding, especially in those first couple of weeks when you're sleep deprived and emotions and hormones are running through you. It was, um, I would highly recommend preloading some of your learning for the postpartum period um, and taking some of these courses if you're expecting or, or have a new baby even yes, as
2: well. And a lot of the program itself is funded uh, through St. Paul's Foundation's uh, Lights of Hope campaign. Can you talk a little bit about the campaign and, 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 and its goals?
7: Sure. Um, I'm not too, too familiar with it as I don't work on the campaign, but it is something that St. Paul's Foundation does every year at this time of year. And they raise money um, for many great programs throughout St. Paul's. And I know this prenatal program is one of those that they're hoping to expand and make more accessible for everybody um, moving forward. As we're seeing in the news now that this pandemic isn't really going away yes. um, in 2022 like we thought it would. Um, so uh, just to speak a little bit, like you mentioned earlier, just about the isolation of um being a new mom or pregnant during the pandemic, I will say they, uh, St. Paul's reached out to me because I had done a prenatal class. They talked about doing a new parent group as well. Mm-hmm, which mm-hmm. I joined in and um, that came just at the right time for me. That was about a year ago in winter 2020 and early 2021. And I actually had been experiencing some postpartum anxiety at that time just with the holidays and worrying about what was right to do with a newborn and the pandemic going on. And then St. Paul's reached out with this new parent group and it was just such a great resource um, to have access to other parents experiencing the same thing. And we met weekly to talk about issues.
2: Yeah. And I, I mean, talk to me a little bit about you mentioning other parents going through this. It, 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 I, I think it would be an issue even pre COVID, but mm-hmm. this challenge in regards to isolation, social isolation is just been multiplied times 20 now with COVID, isn't it?
7: Correct. Yeah. You feel very, you want to do the best thing for your new baby and for you and your health. Um, and you're just overwhelmed with decision making, and that like to me for postpartum anxiety, and it was helpful to talk it through with other moms experiencing the same thing, and learn important things too, like how to dress your baby for cold weather, or introducing solid foods, um, or you know looking after yourself from a physio's perspective postpartum. That was one of the topics there as well too.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, how has it been as a nurse, i we're just stepping away from the, the prenatal classes uh, for a moment, but generally in, in your profession, um, not just where you work at St. Paul's, but uh, in, in other departments as well, how has COVID been for, for you and um, for your colleagues uh, who play such an integral role in our healthcare system, which is challenged in, in a way that it's never been challenged under COVID? Mm-hmm. Speak to that a little bit for me.
7: Sure. Um, I did return to work in November of this year after maternity leave um, and it was a very, uh, I was very nervous to return, not knowing what the situation was with going into the winter with the pandemic still going on and um, just everybody at work, it's a different um, atmosphere at work now. Everybody is a bit calmer in the sense that we've been dealing with this for so long that it's not, the anxiety isn't around the new and the unknown, but it's almost shifted and i see a lot of burnout um at work and people are tired and and there's been a lot of emotional stress placed on the healthcare professionals for the last year and a half and and it's um it's hard to see people still sick in the hospital and surgeries being delayed um people who need them not being able to get them just yet um, but hopefully in the new year it's been just a very um Interesting window into to what the nurses and doctors and all the healthcare professionals have been going through for the past year and a half. I'm, I'm back in that now. Yeah. <laughs> there, there is burnout, though. Yeah.
2: Do you feel safe going into work? When I, I see those images, and maybe they're seared in my mind, with uh, the, the masks and uh, the various paraphernalia that the, the nurses are wearing and doctors are wearing and healthcare, other healthcare workers put on. Do you feel safe going into
7: work? I do, yes. We have appropriate PPE always available and readily available as well, too, on my unit and throughout the hospital.
2: Well, you know what? Uh, I'm so glad and I'm so glad uh, you're involved in this program and uh, it it does uh, such tremendous amount of work. The Lights of of Hope um, uh, uh, through the St. Paul's Foundation's Lights of Hope campaign, lighting display, uh, they do such great work, but they do need help from the community uh, in regards to uh, purchasing equipment, life-saving research and of course community programs such as the virtual prenatal class. Uh, We are asking our our listeners and uh, Vancouverite's to to donate, donate if they can to the lights of hope campaign and you can gain uh, find more information at lightsofhope.com that's lightsofhope.com Sarah, thank you for your time today no
7: problem. thank you Jazz. have an- uh-